we've moved in one generation from the world of chemotherapy and diagnosis as death sentence to targeted therapies and cures. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. Today on the Cineos Health Podcast, we are talking oncology. I'll be joined by Bob Millam, head of our Oncology Center of Excellence here at Cineos Health. We'll be talking about World Cancer Day and how pharmaceutical companies can approach oncology clinical trials. I'll be joined in the second half of the program by Dave Query, president of Navicor, who will talk about what it's like to be an oncologist in this brave new world. World Cancer Day and the Oncologist next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Bob, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So it's World Cancer Day. Tell me about World Cancer Day, why it's important for anyone really in the industry. World Cancer Day is an opportunity for people who are involved in cancer research and the development of cancer therapeutics, but also people who are involved with cancer because of a diagnosis either for themselves or for someone they love, an opportunity to put the word out to encourage people to take an active interest and support research and development of potential therapeutics, which can change patients' lives, but also to recognize that there is an important role to play for cancer research, that advances can't take place without participation of patients and their families in clinical trials and to a crucial need for the field to move forward to get the participation and support from the population in general. Cancer treatment has changed a lot, especially in the last 20 years. If I'm dialing back my own mental clock to when essentially monoclonal antibodies started really taking over oncology, prior to that point, there wasn't a lot of mergers and acquisitions work, which is where I started and have spent most of my career in oncology, and then suddenly it exploded with everybody buying everyone else at very, very, very high prices at times. Part of that was driven by the science. But also, we've now come to the kind of fruits of that labor, where the great innovation has turned into, we're not looking at cancer as being something that's a short-term treatment, but as something maybe we live with for a long time because it's treatable. How have you seen oncology changing, and what does that mean for the industry? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Cancer therapy has advanced significantly, particularly in some areas where it's become, for certain indications, almost a chronic disease that patients live with rather than what used to be known as a death sentence. I think there are certainly indications where patients die with their disease instead of dying from their disease. It's also true that new technologies and techniques have enabled us to approach treating cancer in very different ways. I think that the previous generation of cancer therapies were much more blunt instruments than some of the types of approaches that we're able to do today. You mentioned monoclonal antibodies there, I think, is an example of a significant advancement which scientists and researchers have been talking about as potential key to great benefits for patients. But their development of monoclonal antibodies was first done in the early 1980s, and I can recall being back in university at the time and hearing about that and talking about the potential of these monoclonal antibodies to be used as magic bullets that could be developed to target tumor cells and 
magically target and help the body destroy tumors. But it took more than, I think, 15 or 20 years for those antibodies to really reach the true fruition of those labels. Some of the earliest monoclonal antibodies, for example, rituximab or rituxin is its commercial name, which targets protein expressed on a certain type of blood cancer, was maybe one of the first monoclonal antibodies to really show benefit. Before that, uh, there were a lot of different steps along the way, things like protein engineering and molecular biology, which had to be leveraged to turn those early types of monoclonal antibodies into real therapeutic tools that could be used. And now we're seeing them used in a number of different ways across different kinds of indications, most notably recently in the field of immuno-oncology or immunotherapies, uh, which have provided some of the most exciting advancements in the last 15 years. It occurs to me that if we're moving from something that's an acute treatment to more of a chronic treatment, or at least the patient might be having more long-term outcomes as opposed to short-term outcomes measured in weeks or months, we're looking for longer survival advantages, that side effects that we once would have tolerated now we might not tolerate anymore in newer drugs. I recall one client, I'm not going to name the client for obvious reasons, who had a drug to treat a very deadly form of cancer that also might have retinopathy associated with it. And the pushback was, well, patients are going to go blind, but the patient was going to die if they didn't get it. So that might have been an acceptable side effect. I don't think that that would be so acceptable today. You oversee a lot of clinical trials in oncology. Is there less risk tolerance for adverse events that maybe 20 years ago or even 10 would have been tolerated. I think that's true, especially in those diseases where we've made the most progress in prolonging patients' lives. Certain segments of breast cancer, for example, as well as some types of lung cancer, those patients can now expect to live years instead of months. And so there is much more scrutiny on adverse events profile for patients and and indeed, the amount of money involved in these therapies, you know, the, clearly these therapies take years and billions of dollars to develop. And so the cost for these therapies is quite high. And you've seen the growth in a number of countries of governmental and in our own country, non-governmental agencies who are responsible for reviewing the relative value of treatments based on the quality of life that they provide to those patients and decisions on whether insurance agencies or government agencies will reimburse are based upon those adverse event profiles. That's very true. I think one advantage of some of the so-called targeted agents and in fact immune as well, immune therapies are their relatively, one might almost say mild adverse event profile relative to chemotherapies, which have, as you know, everyone's familiar with the typical image of a cancer patient with loss of hair from radiation and nausea and vomiting from chemotherapy. You know, in some cases, those chemotherapies are either able to reduce those or, or not use them at all. However, those adverse events, which are relatively rare, become then more important because patients will be taking the drugs for longer and you see more of the same kind of attention paid to relatively rare adverse events that has always been the case for diseases like cardiovascular disease and respiratory disease. 
You brought up cost as someone who's been involved in the M&A side. That cost number is not a phantom, <laughs> uh, especially in oncology, because the responsibility of the manufacturer was at least a few years back was to pay for all of the drug used on the control arm. And the control arm was standard of care. And therefore, you were paying for drugs that would cost upwards of $100,000 per patient because you had to have that for the control arm or even on both arms and you were doing an add-on therapy. So the trials that previously might have been sub $100 million trials suddenly became an easy $200 million trial and you had to have multiple of them and you could work your way up to a billion pretty easily once you added in a few more tumor types. Have I misstated the case? No, I don't think you've misstated the case, but I do think that the industry has found ways to manage those costs. And in some ways, it's promoted collaboration between pharmaceutical companies where one company might approach another and say, if we treat with my novel drug in combination with your approved drug in this trial, there's an opportunity to get more value out of your drug. And so a number of alliances have been formed in, in that way, which I think benefits both the industry and the patient. And it's also true that there are different rules requiring reimbursement of or provision of agents which might otherwise be considered standard of care, depending on where the trial is conducted. And so decisions are made on where trials are conducted based, at least in part in some cases, on whether or not the control arm or the standard of care combination therapy will be reimbursed. And those have been strategies that companies have used. It's World Cancer Day that we're really focused around. So as we think about World Cancer Day, what is it that the industry need to know about it? What do different providers need to know about it? What do different physicians need to know about it? How can we as a community help support the patient? I think the field has gotten immensely complex, but also very large. You know, I just did a quick survey in one of the online databases. Right now, there are over 65,000 oncology trials registered globally. Out of 5,000 investigators, 33,000 sponsors looking at over 5,000 different drugs. Right. Now, not all of those trials are necessarily active at the moment. Some of those trials are being sponsored by hospitals and other cancer research institutions. But nevertheless, you know, 60,000 plus trials, that's a lot of trials. And there's no doubt that cancer is a significant problem. But the problem is even greater when we look at the challenge of recruiting patients for those trials. There, I've seen numbers which estimate that fewer than 5% of cancer patients are willing to participate in clinical trials. And so what happens is as the field expands and if we narrow down further just to immuno-oncology, right, really exciting area of, of research and something that we think has a, an enormous amount of promise, there's 20 3,000 trials ongoing for immuno-oncology drugs. Those trials, almost without exception, take longer than they're expected to take. And almost all of that delay can be attributed to a challenge in recruiting patients. 
And so I think it's important on World Cancer Day for us to recognize that as industry, the pivotal place that patients take in advancing research. It's important for the industry to try to promote appropriate participation in clinical trials and to educate the community in general about the potential for benefit, not only to those individual patients, but for patients that will follow. Without trials, new drugs can't be approved and trials can't take place without patients. And so I think World Cancer Day is an opportunity for us to spotlight the importance that patients and therefore clinical trials take in advancing the reduction of both risk to cancer and negative outcomes from cancer. I'll give you a confession. I've had the call. I'm not an expert in cancer. I worked in one cancer lab many, many years ago on P53. And my work is almost purely financial and advice. But I still get questions from friends and family on this exact question. Do I need to be in a clinical trial? I am not a doctor. I can't give medical advice. What things are cool and promising? I'm sure you get this question way more than I do. And you're an informed advisor. But if you're a patient and you know that clinical trials might be the next best thing or not, do you have a sense of how you might tell a person to navigate that if they're impatient? One important thing I've learned is that patients need to be advocates for themselves. You know, when my parents were growing up, they would get sick, they would go to their general practitioner, who we didn't call a GP in those days, we just called them a doctor, right? You just go to your doctor and say, what do I do? And you trust the doctor and the doctor says, do this, or there's nothing we can do. And you sort of say, okay, fine, there's nothing we can do. In a field like oncology, where the landscape is changing literally week to week, what drugs are approved, what new drugs are available, what drugs used to be available just for one disease, but now might be approved for another disease, it is really impossible for any one physician to be completely up to date on everything that's going on. And that's even more true for doctors who are treating patients, what we refer to as out in the communities, right away from the large metropolitan centers with big research-oriented institutions. It's really unfair for us to expect that a medical oncologist who treats patients in a, not even a remote location, but a non-metropolitan location that's not associated with a big research institution, right? that doctor may see seven or eight different types of cancer in a single year. And when they run upon, let's just take as an example, a tumor type, which has seen a lot of advancements, non-small cell lung cancer that occurs in patients who are relatively young and non-smokers. We know now that those patients are more likely to have translocations in a gene we call ALK, so it's a translocation in a couple of chromosomes that result in a very aggressive type of lung cancer, which previously would result in the death of the patient in well under a year, maybe in six months from diagnosis. Yeah, ALK, this kind of mutation is a large mutation. You can see it if you look under the microscope and you have the chromosomes appropriately pulled down. You see things moving around, if, if I'm recalling. That's true. You can detect it with a microscopic evaluation called FISH. The key thing here is that it's very rare. You know, it's in less than 5% of lung cancers. And so if you're a community oncologist treating patients with lung cancer, if it's 10 years ago or 12 years ago, 
you get a patient who shows up in your clinic who's 35 years old, non-smoker, has got lung cancer, you're like, I don't know, I mean, lung cancer, we treat it with surgery, radiation, and then platinum doublet chemotherapy. That's what we do. And it doesn't work in these patients and they die. Now we know it's part of the workup that these patients get a molecular analysis to find out if they have a translocation in ALK. And we know that phenotype of patient is more likely to respond to these ALK inhibitors like crizotinib, which was one of the first generation ones out there. But 10 or 12 years ago, we didn't know that. It's the same way for new populations of treatments of indications now. And so I think it's important for patients and their families to be advocates for their own treatment. And if your local oncologist says there's nothing that can be done, to try to reach out to, there are a number of patient advocacy groups online for lots of different types of cancers. And as well, I think it's easier to research potential treatments. I would say that it's better to do a guided search rather than a completely unsupervised search because there are obviously for every true significant advance, there are a number of questionable uh, novel slash natural slash alternative therapies, which really have no scientific evidence behind them, but there are ways to push your way through that. So I think it's important for patients to be their own advocates, for patients to approach either through email or phone calls, large academic institutions where you're not talking to an oncologist who sees 15 cancer patients a year with five different indications to instead talk to an oncologist who treats only gastrointestinal cancers. There is a person who's going to be up on what's the most effective treatments for esophageal cancer, for example, if that's what you're diagnosed with. So I think that's something that's important and something that we as an industry can help to promote through events like World Cancer Day. Bob Millen, thanks so much for being on the Cineos Health Podcast and talking through World Cancer Day. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. I'll next be joined by Dave Query to talk about The Oncologist. Dave is president of Navicor, which is a communications firm dedicated solely to oncology. We recorded this bit on the floor of a leadership conference, so you'll hear a bit of crowd noise in the background. Dave Query, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. I've been trying to have you on for a long time. I'm glad you finally, uh, I finally got you in the booth. <laughs> I apologize for being so elusive. So I've known you for years. We've mm-hmm. worked together and you work at Navicor, yes, right? Yes. So, and what is Navicor? Navicor is a specialty communications company that's focused exclusively in oncology. Yeah. We've been around since late 2004. We've worked in well over 50 different tumor types across diagnostics, devices, malignancy, solid tumors, big pharma, small pharma, big biotech, small biotech. Yeah. If it's in oncology, we've pretty much touched it. So one of the things that you don't expect if you're evaluating mergers and acquisitions deals is that somebody from an agency will be knowing quite so much about oncology. So it was really, uh, it was a breath of fresh air, honestly, to be able to to work with someone that was quite so knowledgeable. And today you wanted to talk about the oncologist. Yeah, we can look at our business in a traditional sense of product, clinical data, benefit, and selling per se into, into our customer base. But I think a better realization or a deeper understanding of the evolution of who the oncologist is and the pressures that are being applied against them is critically important in order for us to deliver the right information at the right time to make the best impact. And what I'm talking about is 
Um, oftentimes the traditional model was we field a sales force, we arm them with the proper educational materials and clinical data, and we send them out. And you have a lot of windshield time and a lot of waiting room time. And eventually they get in and have a conversation with the physician about a specific disease state and a specific set of data and expectations and patient profile. But today, that entire dynamic is changing, changing dramatically. You've seen a significant reduction in the number of private community oncology practices. The entrepreneurial oncologists is a dying breed. They're being bought up, closed down shops because of reimbursement challenges. They're being integrated into academic networks where the patient referral pattern can be controlled better. They're being integrated into independent delivery networks. And with that comes the advancements of EMR systems and pathways and algorithms. And now all of a sudden you've got a customer base that is operating within a business model where they don't have the autonomy. They're practicing what they're told to practice based on algorithms, guidelines, and reimbursement conditions. So when you think about that, how do we deliver our message in that new world environment where there are so many controls and pressures? I think the traditional view of the oncologist was that the oncologist of any therapeutic area, any specialty, was the one that was the most scientifically invested and most scientifically knowledgeable. But if we're now moving to a model where they're not individually having to make certain decisions that they used to make all the time, mm -hmm. are they getting less smart? Interesting observation. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say they're becoming less smart. I think what we're doing is we're bombarding them with so much information at such a rapid rate that it's becoming much more challenging to just stay up with the clinical data that exists. There was an interesting study that was done a few years back that looked at physicians who had access to industry representatives compared to physicians that didn't. And the interesting observation that came out of it is when you had a label change, like a black box warning applied to your product, the physicians that did not have rep access actually were six months behind the other physicians in terms of making adoptive changes to their practice patterns and understanding those new sets of information. So the industry definitely plays a role in educating our customers. But the barriers are causing a challenge. But even above and beyond that, it's the pace of advancement. When you take a look at drug discovery and drug development, it is accelerating at an exponential rate. And when you consider roughly 40 to 45% of our industry's drug development is in oncology, that's a lot of innovation. That's a lot of new assets coming into the marketplace for our customers to learn. And when you start putting the pressures around lower reimbursement per patient, so therefore they have to see more patients per year just to stay even with their compensation, because we've got to remember, physicians are people too. They've got families, they've got kids, they've got tuition bills coming. So we have to understand and think about that when we start to think as an industry, how do we participate and engage with them in dialogues and information sharing? For instance, adaptive cell therapy, the CAR-Ts, the tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, the TCR technology, these are all major advancements, but they're incredibly complex to administer and to understand and to differentiate. And then on top of that, the pace at which they're starting to develop. So I'll give you a prime example. There are companies that have found an opportunity to leverage the Chinese drug development model into the U.S., where you can get into humans faster and avoid a lot of the preclinical work that we traditionally have to do in the United States. You can get first dose in human faster in China and de-risk your drug development timeline and de-risk your clinical profile and then replicate that back in the United States very quickly and get approved on a phase one trial and a partial cut of a phase two. That's unheard of. 10, 15 years ago, we were still in the two randomized placebo-controlled phase three trials. And this is because it's oncology? A lot of it is the unmet need in oncology and the desire to get therapies into the market faster, not just from an industry standpoint, not from an investigator standpoint, but also from the regulatory authorities. The regulatory authorities understand that they can oftentimes be the rate-limiting step 
to innovation and advancement. And if we look at that in the context of disease states with very, very high unmet needs, it's, it's probably best for the patient, it's best for the industry, and it's the best way to get innovation quickly. It does seem as though oncology as a therapeutic area has changed the most. If we even just look back at where mergers and acquisitions were 20 years ago, oncology, not really a thing. Yeah. In fact, it's something that had been a pretty staid area. If Sorry, if you work in oncology 20 years ago and you take exception to that. But it was a little depressing to be an oncologist. You had tools that were pretty blunt. Yes. They hurt the patient a lot and they didn't work very well. And now you have things that are fantastic, but they're very expensive and they're very complicated. And there are a lot of them. I mean, molecular biology just changed everything. Yeah. No, it it really has. But it's also, it's changing the expectations of what success looks like. So to your point earlier, you're, you're right. I mean, the mainstay of oncology for decades has been traditional cytotoxic chemotherapy. And interestingly enough, it hasn't gone away. Right. A lot of the innovative therapies really find their best benefit when combined with some of those more traditional approaches. So we haven't unfortunately gotten to uh, a chemotherapy-free treatment regimen. We're getting close. There are certain tumor types in certain areas where we're starting to see that as a possibility, but we're not, not completely quite there yet. So what do you do as an oncologist? You've seen that you have this flood of data. You've seen that the innovations are coming, even just from the regulatory side, where you get approvals that you didn't expect at a, at right. a pace that was much higher than before. And there is no way that you can keep up with the paper load at this point. Just no way. You don't have to just follow nature. Now you have nature, colon, pick your <laughs> nature yeah. medicine yeah. and nature cell biology or whatever the, the different groups are, drug discovery, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I, I think, I think what you're going to see, and we've seen that it, it's always kind of been there in the background. I think we're moving from a model of the general oncologist that manages 15, 20, 30 different tumor types. You're going to see much more specialization. It's going to be required. So you're going to see the advancements that have happened in multiple myeloma, for instance, where 15 years ago, you really didn't have anything at all and most patients died within a year or two, to now we have patients living eight, nine, 10 years, some 20 years, because we've got a plethora of options to figure out what that long-term sequencing pattern is. The marketplace has finally took hold of this idea of, I can't only look for the silver bullet that provides a cure and be done. I need to take a look at how do I manage a number of therapies and sequence progression-free survival benefit after PFS after PFS and string those therapies along to get the best benefit so that people are dying with cancer as opposed to dying from it. That's probably the biggest mind shift that is going to drive more of a specialization of the hematologist and the oncologist into individual swim lanes where they can truly master a disease state and understand all the complexities of it and manage it for the long term as opposed to you're diagnosed, how do I get you into remission? That's still an immediate objective. But understanding that longer-term picture and how I plan my therapies one after another to get the best benefit is really where I think the market has shifted. You've mentioned a couple ways that the world has changed for the oncologist. One of them was consolidation. They now work in hospital systems, and they are told what to do in some cases that they weren't told what to do before. And there's even two layers above that, right? There's the payers telling them what to do when they weren't told what to do before. And then there are certain groups that put out protocols that are followed by payers, and the payers are pointing at U.S. oncology or other groups. I just wanted to get your commentary on that. What's that like for the oncologist as you work with them? I think it's going to be a major shift. Oncologists in general, when we've done a lot of the psychographic research and profiling of who they are as, as a person, why they go into medicine, why do they go into oncology in particular, we find that they really kind of fall into two camps. One is problem solvers. They want to tackle tough challenges. That's what kind of gets them excited internally and emotionally is that problem-solving capability, our challenge. The other side is the humanitarian component. It is purely a a desire 
to help an individual through a tough journey. It's that emotion that they really feed off of. There's always variations, but we generally found they fall in those two camps. The interesting part about it is the shifting of the oncology care model and the business of oncology, and it is a business, we have to understand that, it's probably going to be more impactful to the problem-solving side because what drives them is tackling these challenges, and now they're going to have a third-party voice come in and tell them mm. how to challenge it. I don't think it's going to affect the more humanitarian or emotive-driven uh, side of the oncologist because they're still having to interact and, and getting that opportunity to help that patient out. I hope oncologists out there forgive me. When I've interviewed physicians over many, many projects over the years, there are a few that are more financially driven than others. And I put dermatologists, sorry, dermatologists, and oncologists would probably be one and two for me. I mean, they're buying billing, they're buying product, they're selling it to the patient, and they're making a cut, hopefully, of profit if they've negotiated, right? How does that fit into our categories that are um, uh, nicer? Uh, no, it's, it's a great question. I think a lot of that has already been addressed to a great extent in the changing reimbursement model where they're not making the significant markups off of the drug uh, originally. It's shifted more to being reimbursed for the admission of the therapies. There's still some pockets where you see that financially driven opportunity being taken. But again, as you see these practices struggle with budget sequestration and therefore the reductions in reimbursement that are happening, that's a lot of what's forcing these practices to either close or merge. And once they get into a, an IDN situation, all of that goes away because now it's being run more as a corporation than yeah. as an individual practice where individual desires and, and uh, ambitions might have a little bit more of a play in their decisions. So that being in the integrated delivery network, that then kind of solves, in a sense, the individual problem of okay, Yeah, uh, I think it does. Greed. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I, it, yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, do you think that oncologists are happier now than they were before? No. I think they're under more stress than they ever have been. Um, in fact, there have been several articles come out recently speaking to mental health of healthcare practitioners and oncologists are pretty much at the top of that list in terms of stress and depression and anxiety. It's a very tough category to operate in. It takes a very, very special person to do that. And then you start applying all these other pressures we're talking about and the advancements in, in innovation and drug development. It can become overwhelming very, very quickly. So if you're a manufacturer, how do you engage with oncologists differently than you might have thought about 10 years ago or even five years ago? Like what's different about them enough and how do you deal with it? It's a great question and I wish I had my crystal ball to look into, but I, I think part of it is our industry is going to have to have a much deeper appreciation and understanding of the dynamics that our customer are exposed to and being forced into. And therefore we need to shift our model. I, I foresee a future where we're not going to have our traditional model where we have sales teams out going and visiting our customers throughout the day and, and interrupting their practice. I think we're going to have to shift to a model where we are 24-7 on demand for when that customer wants to search for information or needs to talk to somebody. That's a huge shift. It's a huge shift. And, and that's going to elevate the importance of brand awareness in their minds because we're really getting more into uh, an online consumer type world in, in that particular situation. There's always going to be a need for information. We're always going to have to be there to provide it, but it's going to be on their time schedule versus our time schedule. I think that's that's one major shift. Dave Query, thanks so much for being on, finally, on the Cineos <laughs> Health Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. If you have comments, suggestions, questions, or if you just want to talk through a particular challenge that you're having at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast 
at SinosHealth.com. We're consultants. That's what we do.